0: Welcome again to the Motorsport Magazine podcast. Thank you very much for joining us, or downloading us, or whatever it is you do with this. But anyway, it's good to have you, and for the next one hour, we'll be talking to a man who was once the fastest man on earth. That was 30 years ago. His name is Richard Noble, and he's still in the business, because this time... He's going to do 1,000 miles an hour, except, of course, very sensibly, he's putting another man in the cockpit. We'll be talking to Richard about all things to do with land speed records, particularly his Bloodhound project, in just a moment. But first, I must tell you about our new subscription offer. And this is a good one. You can save up to £59 when you subscribe to Motorsport Magazine today. That's a lot of money. And... You get a free motorsport cooler bag. Yep. So um that will make sure you have a fresh and cool lunch when you're trackside at your motor racing. That's what it says here. <laughs> it? I, anyway, well that's a, that's a that's a good present. Yep, yep, I wouldn't mind one of those. Um anyway, the prices start at forty nine ninety-nine. So just go to our website, that's motorsport one word dot com. Motorsportmagazine.com forward slash CBP. That's CBP thirteen one three. Okay, good. Well, uh, I hope lots of you will do that because uh, that way you get motorsport through the post every month. Don't have to think about it. Fantastic. Okay. Richard, welcome, and thank you for your time, because I know you work 24 hours a day, eight days a week.
1: (laughs) Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here, I can tell you.
0: Oh, good. Well, the amazing thing is that 30 years ago, well, come October, 30 years ago, we were in the Nevada desert, weren't
1: we? We were indeed, yeah. And I I was being
0: a pain in the ass (laughs) trying to get you to answer questions you didn't want to answer, but the upshot of it all was that amazing day in the desert when you and Thrust2 did an average speed of 633 miles an hour and afterwards, I asked you why on earth you did it, and you said, for Britain and the hell of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it rolled straight off the tongue, That's like completely unprepared, yeah. And it's exactly what it was, yeah. But is that, is that really why you did it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the land speed record is just a fabulous thing. I mean, it really is, because you're pushing the boundaries of technology, you're pushing the boundaries of teamwork, you're creating um, these amazing machines... And um, it's just uh, an enormous experience. And uh, what we find too is that the the world loves these things on an enormous scale. For instance, when we did Thrust SSC, our website ran 17 million pages a day. Sorry, 17 million um, visits a day, and it was the fifth largest website in the world. So um yeah, great sport. And, and that was in ninety seven. That was in ninety seven. Yeah. When uh, that's before broadband, so it's all dial-up time. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean
0: we should just we should I should have said at the beginning actually that after Thrust two in October eighty three, you went on to do Thrust SSC, which was driven by Andy Green, who's also going to drive Bloodhound in twenty fifteen, right?
1: Twenty fifteen and
0: twenty sixteen, yes. And twenty sixteen. Yeah. Okay. Um I gotta ask you a question that everybody asks me to ask you. Are oh, in trouble? <laughs> yeah. Well, well, not too much trouble. Um, what is the point of it?
1: Well, there you are. Um, <laughs> yeah, there are there, there are a number of things about it. Um, it's it is one of the most exciting things you can you can do on God's earth. I mean, it really is. Um, if, you're, if you enjoy the, um, the engineering of creating a vehicle like this, if you uh, enjoy the challenge of actually getting it marketed and getting it sold and getting, it, uh, and getting the revenue together, if you enjoy the fantastic teamwork and camaraderie that goes around a thing like this, because it's, it's not like a Grand Prix which is just over in a couple of days. Um, this thing goes on and on and on. <laughs> you know, in Bloodheim we've been together for five years on this. This is really a very long haul. Um, It's just the most amazing experience, and uh, thank God it generates a huge amount of publicity, and because of that, of course, um, we can generate the sponsorship revenue to actually fund it.
0: What what is interesting also is that in 1983, when the name Richard Noble really first hit the headlines, um, it was a tiny little team. Um, It had that sort of feel of, I, I guess, you know, the first of anything, has that really nice feel about it everybody you know put in absolutely the maximum effort didn't they you know never it mind sleeping God they did, yes yeah, yeah yeah um how different is it now with bloodhound where you're spending millions and millions of pounds you've you've got i think it's 60 people working for yep. you mm. do you is it are you still loving it
1: Yes, it's a huge challenge. It just, but on a completely different scale. It really is. Uh, the great thing, of course, of the smaller projects like Thrust Two is that um, a very, very small, intimate team where you all know each other. Um, with Bloodhound, it's a much, much bigger organisation altogether. And um, but it'll, it'll ten, it'll turn itself into an intimate team as soon as we actually start running that car because, uh, as you well yeah. know, of course, once you get the sound of the afterburner and the rocket and everything else going, people will just be absolutely wowed to death with this thing.
0: <laughs> they will, you're right. I should, <laughs> I should have mentioned at the, at the top of the show that our editor is with us, uh, Damien Smith, and our associate editor, Ed Foster, who uh, looks after all our podcasts for us, and they they will be speaking. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But, okay, I just want to finish up with one more point, which is, um, at the time of thrust two, uh, a lot of us were talking, not to your face, but we were saying, My God, you know, is he scared? He doesn't look scared. Is he mad? <laughs> um, can you say now, were you frightened doing that? Because you were, when that car was doing 630, whatever, 33 miles an hour, you weren't far off taking off.
1: Yes, we were within seven miles an hour of takeoff.
0: Seven miles oh, an, an hour, hour of taking yes, off.
1: yeah. And. Um, On reflection, what we were doing was incredibly dangerous Um, because the fundamental thing was that we couldn't model it like we can today, and so therefore you don't have the fallback position of all the modelling data, etc., in which to be able to compare your your data. Also, our ability to, um, uh, to record data from the car was very, very limited indeed. So what we were doing was driving this car faster and faster and faster into the very dangerous transonic speed range, where some of the airflow is supersonic and some of the airflow is subsonic, and a very, very small increase in Mach number can cause huge pressure changes across the car, and um, comp- you can completely lose it. Um, and uh, John Ackroyd designed a car which would do it. It was, uh, it was absolutely brilliant. I could drive that car at 650 miles an hour to, uh, with a lateral accuracy of one and a half inches, it was absolutely astonishingly good car, and we set the design speed at 650 miles an hour, and we did 650.88. So all credit to John and the team. It was a great, great effort.
0: Absolutely, so they were a bunch of really well. They are a bunch of really clever guys. I'm sorry, I said it was the last one, but I just wanted to, you, 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 you were, you were, and are a pilot. But, uh, but yes, I
1: was. I haven't, um, I'm not flying at the moment. No,
0: fine. But what, But how did you train for doing that speed in a car on the ground? Because things are coming past you, I mean, unimaginably quickly, aren't they?
1: Right. Well, first things first. Um, what was needed more than anything else was personal discipline. And Ken Norris, who was helping us, and Ken was the designer of uh, Donald Campbell's Bluebird car and boat. And Ken was absolutely essential to the whole project. And he said, well, I... Um, I own this flying club, and uh, you better go and learn to fly, get some personal discipline, and that's what I did. And I did an awful lot of instrument flying and and so on, and that helped enormously, absolutely enormously. so you've got that, um, and the uh, impression of speed is quite something. Uh, of course, you're, <laughs> you're on a flat bit of desert. It's a bit like being at sea in a boat, actually, because there isn't anything really nearby. But the ex- there are two extraordinary effects, um, three, actually. The first is at 650 miles an hour, you can see every single detail on the track go up and under the car. Okay, Because what's actually happening is your mental processes are speeding right up and rather like the last time you had a car accident, <laughs> you know, it all happens in slow motion. So this is extraordinary. So the whole thing is very, very relaxed. And I remember having a long discussion with Nigel Mansell about all this, and we came to the conclusion that the whole thing on, in terms of motor racing was about processing power, the ability to actually, um, uh, to uh, process vast quantities of data through your brain quickly, and therefore everything happens in slow motion. Um, I remember one day driving at, uh, oh, I suppose we were in the 620, 630 mile an hour range, and um, the conditions, the atmospheric conditions, were very different, it had rained, and suddenly the car was covered uh, with a shockwave-caused f- um, f- um, cloud, really, That's a very, very fierce cloud. And I remember looking out of the cockpit and saying, my God, remember this, you'll never see this again, this is really something. And then you come out of the measured mile, and the car had, uh, um, had a big cross-sectional area, it was very light, and it had a very big parachute. And so we deployed the parachute at just over 600 miles an hour, and immediately you got 6G deceleration. And the extraordinary effect about this is that uh, under this extreme deceleration, uh, your, um, it upsets your inner ears, which should give you your balance. Uh, the effect is called a somatographic illusion. And uh, you're absolutely convinced you're driving straight vertically downwards into the centre of the earth. It's an extraordinary experience. And then, you know, the G comes off very quickly and you're, you're kind of back to normal and then you're down to 400 and it's getting boring, you know. The other thing which is interesting too is at top speed, just you haven't really got time to admire the scenery at the speed, but uh, at top speed you could see the, um, the mountains change on the horizon. Well, very, very quickly. You know, when you drive normally in a normal car towards uh, towards the mountains, and, um, you know that you see the perspective change. Here, the spe- perspective is changing really fast, which is an astonishing experience. So that, that's about it, really. <laughs> Richard, what you achieved
2: back in '83, it, it reminds me of a an Olympic athlete that they spend years and years building up to this mo- one moment. Yeah. and You finally achieve it after so much work. How do you come down from that? What do you do Damon, It's
1: a bloody nightmare. It really is because you've got a very, very close team and you've got very, very hard and tough discipline in the organization and suddenly it's all over. And there's no reason actually for everybody to stick together because we all came together to, to do this car, you know. Uh, we didn't, uh, we, nobody got any long-term plans in terms of selling merchandise or whatever off it. It was over, it was absolutely over. And, uh, and the same too with the thrust SSC project, very, very close team of people, fantastic um, team achievement, and then suddenly it's over. So it's, it's a big come down. And with thrust SSC, the workload was so intense uh, that it took most people about two years to recover. So you must have been very relieved when SSC
2: was launched, when, it, when the idea was you know, mooted to get to go back and do it again and go faster.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it was a great opportunity. Um, the story is a very interesting one because um, I was out on Bonneville um, with Art Alphonse and Craig Breedlove and Breedlove then said to me, well, you know, we're going to um, I'm going ahead now, I'm going to build my next car. And then when I came back to Britain, uh, all sorts of people started phoning me up saying, uh, we can't tell you anything, Richard, because we signed non-disclosure agreements. But, uh, but basically, something is going on, and you better, you better find out what's going on. And um, I couldn't really find out what was going on, but a lot of people were were sort of talking about this. And then um, suddenly I got a phone call from the McLaren Formula One people who said, uh, oh, we've got a collection of sponsors turning up um, in a couple of weeks' time, and we'd like to show them something interesting. We'd like to show them uh, um, uh, a copy of your video. Could you you do us a favour and send send us one? So I said, of course, and didn't. (laughs) <laughs> and then they rang up again, oh, um, Richard, it hasn't arrived. You know, oh, dear, I'm so sorry. That's, uh, what a shame. Uh, yeah. So I'll send you another one and didn't. And after a bit, they were getting really apoplectic. <laughs> it's quite clear that's what they, were, uh, they intended to do. So we decided then that um, we would take them on. And uh, really, there were just three of us. There was uh, Ron Ayers, who of course was the aerodynamicist. Without Ron, couldn't have been done. Glenn Basha, who did wheels and structure. Uh, and myself, and we had no money whatsoever. Uh, however, I was invited to go and speak at a, a big Castrol event in Palm Springs. And there I spent a lot of time explaining to them how valuable their brand values were and how important it was that every generation should, uh, you know, should contribute. And I went back to my table afterwards and the managing director said, Richard, you're setting us up, aren't you? And I said, yes, absolutely. He said, come and see me when we get back. And
2: um, When did you take the decision to step away from the cockpit and how hard was that decision for you?
1: This is very difficult. I mean, really, very, very difficult indeed, because um, Uh, I don't think people really realise, but doing a project like this is an enormously painful trauma Uh, of huge dimensions. You're pushing against the culture, you're pushing against what is kind of normal in motorsport terms and normal in sponsorship terms. You're persuading people to do things that they wouldn't normally do. And um, you're persuading them to take a gamble on this little team, setting out to do something as dangerous as breaking the sound barrier. So it's very, very tough. Um, the, uh, the other side of it, of course, is the driving, which is, is not fun. And, um, and if you're driving a car like that and you're getting a buzz out of it, you're absolutely the wrong person. It's got to be a really cold-blooded, merciless... Uh, activity where you're driving to a curve, a performance curve and if you get it wrong you're letting the rest of your team down so um, you know um, so it's an extraordinary experience really one way or another but together as a team you know eventually we pulled it off so giving it up was a difficult one but um, it was the right thing to do, there was no way that I could run the project and drive the car, it was absolutely hopeless.
3: Um, I was looking through some of your potted history this morning before you came in and something that I was sort of looking at your do various jobs and projects and things like that yep. and before Thrust 2 ever raised its head, did you not sell paint? Yes a, I did yeah. Oh, yeah, yes, how, yeah. how do you go <laughs> from selling paint <laughs> to a world's dance beat record?
1: Well it's all about and it's all about uh, motivation and dreams and all the rest of it and when I was a kid, age five, uh, my dad, who was in the army and uh, based in Inverness in Scotland, took us for a drive in, the, in, in our Hillman Minx <laughs> round the north side of Loch Ness. And uh, we stopped at uh, Drum the Rocket uh, where there's a pier called Temple Pier. And John Cobb's jet boat crusader was sitting on the pier and I saw this thing and I thought, wow, that (laughs) is fantastic. Um, You know, this guy had built this, had this fantastic jet-powered boat built and he was going out and he was driving it at over 200 miles an hour on the lock. What a fantastic thing to do. (laughs) And it's a bug. It's really simple as that. So it never really leaves you and uh, you, you keep on coming back to it, simple as that. So were you ever a motor racing fan or was that something? I, I, I really wanted to do it. But A, I'm a big bloke, which doesn't help. And secondly, um, I'd never had enough money. And the, um, and the great overall uh, overarching desire was to, was to get that land speed record back.
0: It does mean going round corners as well, of yeah, course. Yeah, that, that's which, a hell of a problem, there really is. You don't have a
1: lot of experience with <laughs> that. <about, do you? laughs> we did okay. do one at 200 miles an hour, that was, yeah. that was impressive. <laughs> yes. yes, I bet it was. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what is it about Britain and the land speed record? I mean, our heritage with, with it is just incredible, going all the way back to the beginning.
1: I think you, Damon, you've got that absolutely right. We, there's something very special about this. The land speed record was started by the French in 1898, and they couldn't keep it up. Typical French problem, there you go. Um, and uh, they uh, gave up in the 1920s, and the Brits got going. And of course, what we got was some extraordinary things happening at Brooklyn's. of course. Uh Brooklyns, we got this extraordinary culture, which was motor racing and aircraft. The aircraft drew huge, massive crowds. And, of course, the motor racing fraternity, um, basically, amongst that lot, there were a lot of extremely wealthy people uh, who could afford to have their, uh, have their own cars built for them. And it was extraordinary, extraordinary times. And, um, obviously, after a bit, um, there were two land speed records on Brooklands, so and then after a bit, people started to realize that uh, this generated money, generated um, sponsorship interest, and um, clearly, to go faster, you need to move to the beaches, and then, of course, to, um, to Bonneville, and finally, to Black Rock.
0: Richard, um, you mentioned being inspired by the John Cobb boat. Yeah. Did did it did was there a, uh, when was the time you decided uh, I'm not going to do it on water. I'm going to do it on land.
1: Or d- I was never interested in water. Ah. I never really interested in water at all. But um, uh, you know, pretty soon I discovered there was a land speed record, and I thought, ah, oh, that, that's and of course the land speed record is so much faster, so it's much more interesting. <laughs>
3: Yeah, you were mentioning earlier to how it's, it's such a struggle getting all the sponsorship together and yeah. persuading people to, to invest in something in a very small team going after, quite frankly, mad target. Has that not, Become much easier? No, not at all. No, no, because what we're
1: doing, you see, is it's not like a Formula One team where you're just creating another team or you're 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 in for another season. In this case, what you're then doing is raising the uh, the bar substantially. So, um, okay, Thrust Two was getting the world land speed record back, and people didn't think that could be done. So we did that, and then Thrust SSC was a breaking, about breaking the sound barrier, and the, the big companies absolutely terrified about this. They were um, happily promoting. The themselves as a great big brave British industry but um, when you actually put it to the test and say well come on guys we've done all the research on this let's get the thing built and go and do it Um, that run a mile Um, and now of course the thousand miles an hour they think that's absolutely impossible and it can't be done and uh, you know so on. so it's it's a it's a
3: hell of a situation the a thousand miles an hour figure it's it's it seems very neat Um, neat. and obviously you, you did a lot of research into what was um, possible, and w- was it really 1,000 miles an hour? Actually, we could do that, or was it a bit faster now? A bit it slower? started
1: off um, in a completely different way. Um, what actually happened was that um, I was very angry because the uh, the uh, thrust SSC team was never rewarded or recognised for what it actually achieved, mm. and Andy was given an OBE, and frankly, that's pretty miserable. Yeah, and the guy should have been knighted. He put his life on the line day after day after day, and you know, and uh, and when the opportunity came, because basically the Americans had decided they were going to build a, um, another, or sorry, they were going to challenge with Craig Breedlove's old car, um, uh, we then realized that this was a chance to actually come back, but not to just break the record by 5 or 10%, but to really show what could be done. And so we decided, um, you know, on around 30% however that was a decision that was the discussion andy and i had but uh it didn't mean anything because we hadn't actually discussed it with ron as the aerodynamicist so we had a meeting with ron and we said this is what we want to do and uh, ron said how fast and i said mac 1.5 and ron was absolutely horrified so there was a bit of a problem there but a bit of horse trading went on and we ended up at 1.4 which is a thousand miles an hour so that's kind of where it started and then of course we had uh, about between 50 and 55 man years of research
3: uh, to fund before we knew we could actually do it. Really? So you came up with a figure before you even knew whether it was possible, really? Yes, um, we, we believed it was
1: possible, but I mean, that was just pure intuition.
0: Can we, can we talk about Bloodhound a bit now? Hmm. Because, because um, the whole world is talking about Bloodhound. I mean, you should have seen the number of people at the Goodwood Festival of Speed who were trying to climb over it onto it in it asking Uh, questions i mean yeah yeah, no they really love it and and uh, that (coughs) i was very impressed by that richard um and that goes some way to explaining why you've been able to raise the finances thus far yeah you're absolutely right yes yeah well how much help if at all has the government been to you as well as industry because it's if it is a great thing for britain isn't it
1: yes it's an extraordinary story this it really is um the story really starts with the, um, the basic concept of the car. And Ron came up with this concept, which is basically a mixed power plant car. In other words, with a jet engine and a rocket motor. So that's where we kind of started. And uh, Andy and I had said, we're going to build the ultimate car. We're not going to uh, be put off by using 30-year-old jet engines anymore. We're going to use the best. And so Andy fixed up this meeting with um, Paul Drayson, uh, Lord Drayson, who was then the Minister of Defence Equipment and Support and we had this extraordinary meeting um uh, we were wildly ambitious hopelessly ambitious we went to the meeting and paul drayson of course is a lamorne driver and he really liked the story and everything else and it went very well until i asked him for the jet engine and then there was an appalling silence <laughs> clearly he was not going to deliver the jet engine and uh we'd failed we'd been wildly optimistic we'd gone to this meeting we'd failed and uh, we'd failed at the first hurdle if you like. So, when a meeting like that goes wrong, you know, what you've got to do is stand up and, um, and, and uh, say thank you and, and, and walk out. Which is what we tried to do. And Paul Drayson then said, hey, you can do something for us. So, I thought, this is most unusual. The Minister's asking us for help, but let, let's see where it goes. So, I said, yes, of course. And he said, we have an enormous problem in the Ministry of Defence. We can't recruit engineers. And I said, really? He said, yeah, it's, it's very, very serious. And he said, I've thought about this a lot, and he said, um, you see, back in the 1950s and the 60s, and to a certain extent in the 70s, we had a fantastic aerospace industry, which created things like Vulcan bombers and Concords and Lightnings and TSR-2s, I mean, they really actually led the world. And um, he said, and um, uh, we were in the middle of a Cold War, and because we were in the middle of a Cold War, all these things were flying around all the time, and the kids would see them from the schools, and they'd say, wow, that's a Vulcan bomber. Do you realize that can outturn any jet fighter above 60,000 feet? I mean, what a fantastic piece of engineering. And so all these kids got wildly excited by it. And um, now, of course, we don't do that anymore, and because we don't do that anymore, that essential inspiration just isn't there. So his thought was, I want an inspirational project run through every school in the country to create this new generation of engineers. So I remembered the first rule of dealing with ministers is that if they don't like you, you'll never get another meeting. So what you must do is you must fix it then and there. So I stood up, shook the man by the hand, and said, we'll do it. He said, I'm not giving you any money. So I said, I don't care. We're going to do it. So that's where it started. <laughs> I, I,
0: I've, got, I've got to bring up a little anecdote from 30 years ago. Oh, here. my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I am in the privileged position of having been, been there. Okay. Um, I remember <laughs> overhearing a conversation you were having one night on the telephone with Rolls Royce back at home in Britain.
1: Home, um, yeah. Yeah.
0: And mm. uh, I won't quote the exact words, but the, the the gist of it was, you know, you're Rolls-Royce, you've got to help me. And if you don't, I'm going to tell the chairman that you're a load of something or others.
1: Well, not quite. <laughs>
0: well, OK, I'm, paraphr- I'm paraphrasing yeah. the conversation. Yeah. And lo and behold, about two days later, a man from Rolls-Royce yeah. turned up. <laughs> and so, saved the day. Yes, Absolutely so, saved uh, the day. And yeah. so what, um, the point of this anecdote is that um, You have to be a special sort of person to get any of this together, don't you? Let's forget the technology and the money. But, I mean, you have personally driven this thing forward, haven't you, with your sort of unbelievable um, gale-force enthusiasm, is right? <laughs> Well,
1: it's very generous. Would, never, um, would that be true? No, it's a team thing, it's a team thing. And the main thing about it is providing these projects are properly managed, properly thought through, properly researched, properly engineered, you can do it. It's really as simple as that. And uh, the big problem we have in Britain at the moment is we've lost our, our engineering confidence. We don't do these big projects anymore, which is a great, great shame. So percentage-wise,
2: how far away are you from the budget
1: you need to to actually go ahead? We are what in terms of bloodhound. Mm, uh, yeah. We've spent twelve million at the moment, and it's going to cost uh, somewhere between thirteen and forty. Wow. Yep. And how f- how much of um, inroads
2: have you made into that? Thirteen forty. Uh, years? We're been, been a long then? way
1: in, and there's um, some wonderful things happening ar- about right now. But um, sadly, nothing I can talk about. No. But uh, you just it, but got the timing of this thing wrong, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> I guess in the months to come, we'll be drip, drip fed
2: information. Yes, about you will,
1: yeah. absolutely will. There's some just wow. bloody wonderful things happening, yeah. The education
2: side I was quite um, interested in when when it, when when it was originally launched, because mm. that seemed to me to make complete sense. As you say, uh, turning on the next generation of engineers is harder now than it ever ever has yep. been in yep. many ways. What reaction have you had from schools and institutions? Um-
1: well, it's been fascinating. Um, when we started, uh, of course, you know, they were, they'd all raised eyebrows and, um, you know, there was a certain amount of interest because obviously because of the, the uh, thrust land speed record and history and so on. Um, it really got going when we built a full-scale show car of Bloodhound. And that does um, 50,000 um, miles every year going around sh- schools. Uh, we managed to get um, um, some early support from the government, which enabled us to, uh, uh, to get, a, get a small team together and get it going. And it's been a huge fight, massive fight. But where we are at the moment now, we're 5,452 schools now. So uh, and these are schools and teachers who've actually signed up to this thing and are actually following it. And um, it's very exciting because, you see, what's happened is we've we've really learnt the lesson. And the lesson, curiously enough, came from the Thrust SSC project. So in the early days of Thrust SSC, we were building the car there at Farnborough, and the business was very straightforward. What you did was you tried to generate as much publicity as you possibly could, turn that into money, and spend that on building the car. So that's the process. So nobody will invest in a thing like this. Uh, because you don't know what your costs are, and you don't—you've got no idea whether the thing will ever make a profit, or, or, or make any, make the shareholders any money. And also, the shareholders get frightened by the high level of risk we have to run with these projects. So it's best to do it without them, frankly. So there we go, and um, so there we are. We're, we're building the car, and um, we've done whatever it was—two or three years of research on thrust SSC. So we know what we're doing. Car's building, and suddenly all our media coverage dies. And um, we're in trouble, we're in terrible trouble, because basically no media coverage, no sponsorship, no money, no build. So um, uh, basically I'm into the car quick and I drive around and I see a lot of editors and uh, the BBC and, and say, listen guys, this is a really exciting thing, we're creating the world's first supersonic car, we can do this, we know we can do this. and We've done all the research, we beat the McLaren Formula One team to all that and uh, we've done it. And now, now we've got to get this thing built. And uh, why no publicity? And they said, uh, it was very interesting. They said, look, you know, you've know, you got to understand, you've got a niche project here. Um, it's very high technology, and our fundamental problem is our readers won't understand it. It's too difficult for them. And uh, the BBC people were really interesting. We went to the pub, and that was always very important with the BBC guys. Uh, we went to the pub, and we said, um, look, you know, uh, uh, really, what's behind all this? And they said, you've got to understand, Richard, that we are creating um, programmes for a mass market. Uh, your project is very high technology. The level of, in- of intelligence, experience, call it what you will, of our, of, our, um, of our audiences is relatively low and they won't understand this. So we'll be there for you um, when you start to run the car with all the fire and the noise and the violence and everything else. We'll, we'll, we'll be there for you, but um, drawing the bill, n- no, our readers won't, un- on our audience won't understand this. So then, uh, you know, we clearly got the thing really seriously wrong and uh, the next thing was just a lucky break because around the corner came um, the digital corporation of america and said uh, hey guys uh, we're looking for show websites and we said what's a website because we didn't know and uh, they explained and we thought that's really interesting that's one-to-one communication that's fantastically yeah let's go with this so we put a deal together and then we didn't know what to do on the website uh, so what we did was we we corralled all the engineers and said right guys it's very simple um Treat uh, the web as if you were um, talking to a good friend in the pub. Tell them all about it. And uh, so everybody got writing on this thing. And it grew and it grew and it grew. And then uh, around the world, um, the digital people were were promoting it heavily. And suddenly it took off. It just skyrocketed. And then, of course, we could do something the BBC could never do, which was go into the website and um, find out what they were all reading and they were reading the technical pages. So we gave them 800 pages of technology and our website was the fifth largest in the world, larger than the entire motorsport industry. It's impressive. I mean,
0: for, just for, because it's Motorsport Magazine podcast, um, it's worth noting, isn't it, that you mentioned the, the jet engine and the rocket engine, Yeah, but actually the starter motor is a Cosworth V8.
1: <laughs> well, that's, well, not quite actually, right. yeah. Um, what we've got is a jet and a rocket. And uh, if we just focus on the on the rocket, uh, the rocket is fifty percent more powerful than the jet. so it's a big, big beast. It's the largest hybrid rocket ever built in Europe. Uh, it uh, will develop when we've got there 27,000 pounds of thrust. We're in it 14,000 at the moment. And uh, it's a very nice arrangement because we use an oxidizer called high test peroxide, which is the same stuff the girls use on their hair, except it's concentrated. Some, go- some girls. Some girls. <laughs> except it's uh, concentrated to 86%. So if you drop it on the carpet, it sets fire to the carpet. Great <laughs> stuff. Lovely, <laughs> lovely stuff. Um, and uh, then at, uh, the, in the long tube bit of the rocket, the combustion chamber, basically at that end, um, we've got the solid fuel. And the solid fuel is great because it's non-explosive, so you can't even set fire to the solid fuel. It, uh, um, it doesn't work unless it's got a, a tremendous draft of, um, of uh, oxygen going down the middle. So then you've got to pump the high-test peroxide, which is heavy stuff. It weighs 1.4 times the weight of water, so it's heavy stuff. And you've got to pump that through at the rate of one tonne in 17 seconds at 1,000 PSI into the front end of the rocket motor, where it meets the catalyst pack and decomposes. And uh, the problem was that we needed a lot of power to do this. And uh, so the sensible thing to do was to, to, um, to go for our, um, a Formula One engine. We needed 800 horsepower. So this all became very, very interesting because um, the great thing about the Formula One engine is um, it doesn't need uh, an intake like, a, like a, a small gas turbine, which gives us all those problems. And, um, and secondly, it's nice and short and it's, it's light and so on and it's reliable. So, um, let's enter Cosworth.
0: <laughs> so, the, the good old Cosworth V8 is <laughs> yep. going to be part of doing 1,000 miles an hour. Well,
1: that's absolutely it, yeah. Well, I think yep. it's
0: fantastic. I mean, it's one of the best engines <laughs> motor racing's ever seen. Long live
3: the, the CA 2010, yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Richard, I remember you telling me a while ago when we met. I think it was down when you were at the rocket test, um, and you said one of the great things about a project like this is you can share all the data because it's not like a Formula One team, it's not like any other motorsport team. No one's going to copy you. But I did a piece in the magazine uh, end of last year, and we listed some of the sort of your competitors, competitors, I suppose. it's, is there absolutely no worry about them spending all day every day on your website going like, oh, actually, that's quite interesting and maybe, yeah, maybe we should well, use well, you that. see
1: the thing about it is absolutely fascinating. We owe this one to the teachers because when we started the education thing, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. So we, we took stands at um, education exhibitions like the BET show. And the whole idea was to grab the teachers, the STEM teachers, Science, Technology, Engineering, Mathematics. So we grabbed the teachers and in return for uh, an interview there, we would give them a poster and uh, explain what we were doing, etc. And ask them the basic question, first of all, what's it like teaching Science, Technology, Engineering, Mathematics? And the teacher says, bloody awful. Um, The kids are absolutely, they're um, they're just not interested. Mathematics, they don't want to look at. Physics is way over the horizon, you know. Uh, It's very, very serious. And uh, there's not much we can do about this, they said. And so we, I, you know, we wanted to say, well, are, you know, are we doing the right thing here? And they said, well, we, you really could be, actually. But, and then they started pointing fingers at us and saying, now, look, you've got to understand what you've got to do. Um, this is not going to be a project like a conventional project with press releases and pictures and so on. Um, what you've got to do is you've got to make all that data available so we can follow this stuff in the classroom, bit by bit by bit. And uh, we said, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> and it took us far too long to realize that we were in a unique position because basically with the land speed record, the rules state the car must have four or more wheels and must be driven by the driver, who preferably has got to be inside the car. And, uh, the, um, and all the cars are therefore completely different and because they're completely different and because it's emerging technology, what you do doesn't necessarily help a competitor. And then you look at the rest of the world and you realize the defense industry can't do this. Uh, the motor race industry certainly can't because the, the competition is so tight and the cars are so tightly defined. Um, and the space people can't do it. So we're unique. So we should do it. So that's what we've done.
0: What is the competition, Richard? I mean, um, Ed's given me some, some names here. The North American Eagle yeah. is a jet fighter without wings.
1: Apparently. Yeah, they've taken a Starfire turn, um, um, and they've taken the wings off it and put it on five wheels. And um, they have a sort of a different approach to everything. Now, remember what's happening with this land speed record is uh, we only know one way of doing this. Um, this may, might just work. Um, sure, yeah. um, I don't think it'll go, uh, they're talking in terms of 800 miles an hour. I doubt it'll actually make supersonic performance, but um, they're going to be running it this, this, this autumn, and we're going to find out.
0: Another question that people always want me to ask you is, when, and I know you've you've answered this a thousand times, but so what, is when is a car not a car? When is it a plane? Now, I think this is a very fair question, actually.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's very, very simple. Because a car depends on its wheels for its stability and its safety. And uh, um, as long as basically we're on our wheels and um, we're, we're safe. If we get into the air, we've lost it. We've got no control whatsoever, and we've lost it. So it's most definitely a car.
0: OK, so, so, it's all, so, so in effect, if you cut the wings off a jet fighter, th- that is not a car, in my opinion.
1: Well, OK, um, <laughs> as long as it's on the ground, I think it is a car. <laughs> OK, OK, OK. Yeah. And the margins
2: between staying on the ground and taking off are, I guess, minuscule.
1: Yes, you've got to be very, very careful. And you've got to really understand what you're doing here. Um, you see, particularly once you start going um, into the transonic speed range and starting to generate the shock waves, and the shock waves are areas of extremely high pressure. So, for instance, when Thrust as the Sea broke the sound barrier, um, the uh, the double bang, bar boom, as they call it, could be heard 40 miles away and 15 miles away in the little town of Gerlach. Um, it shocked the b- the schools, the school there so much all the Covers off and the sprinklers fell off in the classrooms. Uh, you know. <laughs> so you're dealing with enormous forces. And of course, you know, that's a hundred thousand horsepower car, so you're putting huge energy into them So what you've got to do is you've got to spend an awful lot of time on your aerodynamics just making sure that you can cope with this. And with Bloodhound, uh we've we made an enormous breakthrough. And um at Mach 1.3 and Mach 1.4, there are no shockwaves under the car. And this is due to uh, the team in in Bristol and uh, the team at Swansea University, particular to uh, Ben Evans and Swansea, who who discovered a trend, um, which we then decided we could then follow, and also to our friends at Intel, who gave us the use of three of the largest high-performance computing clusters in Europe, hmm. which then enabled us to run a, a, large, a large quantity of Rolls-Royce software, which actually was enabled us to prove it. It was a fantastic thing when it happened, because suddenly we all um, realised we got it, you know.
3: Doing Bloodhound now with all the, you know, with all the help from computers, CFD, you name it, do you look back occasionally and think, how on earth did we get away with it with Thrust 2? Yeah, well, it's a different world, isn't it?
1: uh, in those days, um, we'd got a, a lot of very experienced aviation people who'd been involved in building the prototype aircraft and so on, and they got a, a sort of extraordinary sort of gut feel for it, uh, and this helped
3: us get through. It's not very reassuring when you're in the cockpit, though, I suppose. It well, it, done it was at a, a at bloody a... <laughs> good car.
1: They did really well.
0: <laughs> Actually, he, lo- I, I remember he looked extremely calm every time he got out of it. I couldn't believe it. Really yeah, well, you
1: come back to that thing that if you're getting uh, emotionally involved yeah, in sure. the thing, you're staffed Sure. and you're a, a, you're a real risk to your team, so yeah. Uh, yeah. that must never happen.
0: It would, cer- it would certainly not be a job for me.
1: <coughs> that pilot training,
2: I guess, comes into play at that stage.
1: Yeah, in terms of discipline, in terms of the d- discipline, which, is, which I didn't have, which is incredibly important. So um as you know with an aeroplane if you're flying along and something goes wrong um you've got to think very very carefully very quickly uh very logically because you could so easily um, take the wrong decision and get yourself into a mess which will kill you.
0: We we have um we have people listening to this motorsport podcast in both North America and in South Africa. Oh and, good. Mm-hmm. And and you uh of course are uh turning your bag now on the Black Rock Desert where you've had so much success and turning to a desert in South Africa. And I think it would be interesting to learn a little bit about how you prepare this ground because um, I know from experience that, that walking slowly across a desert picking up tiny <laughs> stones Weird. is quite a demanding <laughs> occupation. Um, I, I will never forget it. Actually, it's um, very peaceful, though, isn't it? I mean, it's, it is uh, very, it is very hot and very peaceful. peaceful. Yeah, and, yeah. and and, the and third you're left alone uh, with your
1: thoughts. Yeah, you are. And mm. the third
0: thing is that you hope, you hope very, 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 very much that you will not fail to pick up the this one thing one. that gets yeah. in the way. Right. right. Okay. Um, but tell, tell us about how you how you go about finding a desert to run your to run Bloodhound. Okay. Mm.
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, this is this is largely Andy's story. Um, what happens, of course, is with a land speed record is you've got to match the car to the surface you're going to run it on. Yes. And the surface we chose to run on, we learnt the hard way to run on, was called an alkali plier, which is a kind of brown mud lake, dried mud lake with an awful lot of clay in it. And this works very well because it, what it does is it does the job of the tyre. Of course, we can't keep a tyre on a car at these speeds. And so it does the job of the tyre and gives you um, a nice sort of um, flexible... Um, relationship, if you like, compliance um, with the, with the, with the earth, um, so we found the Black Rock desert and we ran on thrust we were on thrust two and thrust SSE there and um, it was great, it was great successful we 've got uh, a huge number of friends there and sure. people who contributed and everything else sure. and we um, obviously with bloodhound that 's where we got to go and uh, so Andy went out there and had a look and came back and said, you know it 's a nightmare richard it 's all changed." Um, it's got dusty. It's got very, very dusty, and uh, and it's formed um, slight dunes and things. It's absolutely hopeless. We can't do that. So suddenly we've got to find somewhere else, and this is a real problem because you you know you've got the design of the car beginning to come together, and suddenly the place you're going to run isn't. And then um, so we went to, uh, or rather, Andy went to uh, Swansea University and said help, and they've got a good ge- ge- uh, ge- geographical department there. And they got access to shuttle images and satellite images, so he set up a programme to find the flattiest places in the world. And I thought, this is really good, you know, because we might find something fantastic in Outer Mongolia, you know, the the perfect surface, you know. And um, he whittled them down to about 30 or so, and then he started travelling around the world looking at these. And it was all pretty disappointing because he kept on getting stuck in them <laughs> when the surface was, was, uh, um, was soft um, or he found that the, the the surface levels were so low that they were linked in some probably almost certainly linked in some way to the um, to the sea and so consequently never dried and um, eventually we came back to um, South Africa and came to uh, Fanoi Pan where um, Sir Malcolm Campbell had been in 1929 oh, right. so we all trooped out to um, to have a look, and absolutely amazed to find that his 1929 course was still there, it was wow. absolutely perfect. And we thought, "Wow, this is fantastic! This is this is what we've got to do." And by that time, the Northern Cape government had, was showing a bit of interest, and so they sponsored, uh, and financed, her an engineering look-see and they came back and said, "It's hopeless. I'm afraid the um, uh, just below the surface are just simply so many stones. That, you, you know, it's never going to work." And so we were about to give up uh, when. Uh, uh rudy who's our track manager said uh oh he said hang on ha- what about hack pan and i thought "Hackskeen pan yeah yes i remember hacking because my brother had been there in the 1980s and uh but we'd given up on Hackskeen because it had a, row, a road on a causeway across the middle and an awful lot of stones but it was very very flat anyhow one thing led to another the northern cape government decided that they were going to back it and so now we would got to change Hackskeen pan and uh, so we had to remove 1.6 kilometers of road on a causeway across the middle and level all that off. And then there was the small matter of the stones. Now, the desert itself is amazingly flat. So we took, our, um, we took our, uh, an analysis of this on, on a section of this, and we found that over 2 kilometers, the dip in the middle, was 60 millimeters. So... <laughs> And the local kids won't play football on it because their balls just disappear over the horizon. You know, (laughs) it's time to stop them. And amazing place. But the only problem is these stones. And the Northern Cape government said, uh, right, we'll deal with that. And so they employ uh, 300 people from the local village where there's 98% unemployment. Um, and these guys get going and they've been going for two years and each person has picked up 20 tons of stones it's by amazing. hand It's a fantastic so 6,000 tons <laughs> 21 million square meters of stones and and it's fantastic and um, it's very much uh, um, a, um, a Sort of society out there which is driven by the women. It's uh, what's the word matriarchal society? and so the women are there and they're brushing the desert and uh, they're, they're leaving it you know, better than your floor here in motorsport. It's absolutely amazing. And I got into terrible trouble here because we took an aeroplane and landed there and we got a real bollocking for doing that.
0: You know, yes, I <laughs> suppose you desert.
1: did. <laughs> but uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful job. It's a remarkable
0: and, story, And, isn't
1: and if it? Uh, anybody's once uh, going to go and have a look and then drive up to Haxkeen Pan and have a look, it's, uh, it's a hell of an achievement. It really
3: is. Is, it, is that going to be the limiting factor in 50, 100 years' time? There's going to be nowhere on earth that you're going to be able to get beyond you know, a certain it's speed. Certainly it's one of the
1: limiting factors. There, there are three limiting factors. One is the power to weight ratio of the car, which controls the, uh, the rate at which it, it, it accelerates. Secondly is the, uh, the ability of the driver to withstand the accelerations. And thirdly, is the length of the course uh, that's available. So uh, at Black Rock Desert, we had 13 and a half miles. um, And here at Tank Scheme, we've got 12, 20 kilometres. So the car's designed to do it in 20. And in terms of the acceleration, it's really very interesting. I was once very privileged to have dinner with Jim Lovell, the astronaut and so we started talking about all this and I said, well come on Jim, well you know, you've got much more experience than we'll ever have, (laughs) what's your view on this? And he said that uh, when they were doing the Gemini flights and when they were being injected into orbit there, um, basically they were pulling 9G, so he's pulling 9G acceleration and so bloodhound is 2G acceleration and 3G deceleration, so we've got a long way to go. Um, You you mentioned the schedule being 2015 and
2: 2016 for the runs. Could you go into a bit more detail about that, about how um, it's planned and
1: presumably every time you run you've got specific targets you want to achieve? Absolutely, yeah. Now, so basically we aim to roll out the car in about May 2015. Uh, Then we'll take it down to uh, Newquay where we've got an operational base there. <clears throat> and that's where we'll, we'll start running it. We won't run it very fast, 200 miles an hour, just just get a feel for it, make sure that everything works all right. And then we'll quickly load it all into the plane and go, and go straight out to to um, an airfield called Uppington in South Africa. And then we've got a about a two, two and a half hour drive to, to get to Hackskeen Pam. Uh, once we're on the Pam, we start very, very slow. We'll probably start at about 100 miles an hour, um, just basically feeling our way and um And the name of the game is that, as the car, as you do more and more, runs, so you obviously increase the speed by relatively small increments, until we start getting uh, transonic, and then you do very small increments while we just get ourselves sorted. once we've got to supersonic, then of course we can um, uh, we can perhaps increase the increment rate. So the idea is to, in two thousand and fifteen is to go up with the car and um, using the, the rocket motor in what we call its monophase. So there it's simply decomposing the hyper- test peroxide. We haven't got the hybrid combustion chamber on the end. And that's sufficient to get us um, supersonic. So we'll go out there and we'll get it supersonic. Uh, we'll find all sorts of things that work. We'll find uh, all sorts of changes what we have to make. And then uh, we'll immediately bring the car back home, take it all apart, refix it, sort it, and then go out again uh, in 2016 with the hybrid rocket. And then we've got the capability of 1,000 miles an hour.
0: I must say, it all makes Grand Prix racing sound rather straightforward, <laughs> doesn't it? I mean, you know.
1: It makes it sound very quiet, actually. I mean, this, is, this thing makes 25 times the noise of a jumbo taking off. So, I mean, it's wow. a serious noisy machine. I hope
0: you've warned the local people <laughs> who kindly picked up all these stones.
1: No, they I mean, are lovely, actually, because, um, uh, you know, um, we all go and see them on a regular sure, basis. Sure. And, uh, you know, as far as they're concerned, it's, it's, it, they all say, it's our car. When is our car yeah. coming, Richard? Come well, on, it's a, get on with it. Yeah. It's, a bit,
0: it's a bit like the community of Gerlach where we were in 83, where, I mean, the entire community was not only excited and thrilled to be part of it, but, but, but lived it. I mean, you yeah. know, and will live it forever yeah. because... And, and then SSC later on. Yep. And um, it becomes a real community thing. And it, I can't imagine, where is everybody going to live in this place that you're describing? Well, disc- that's
1: quite an interesting point. We've got to establish a camp. We've actually got to live on the desert. And the other thing, which is the number of good things, really good things about um, Hackskeen Pan, one is the altitude. So um, it's at uh, about 3,000 feet, which is where we want to be. If we were lower, then the car would have to be made tougher because the dynamic forces are great, pressures are greater, and therefore the acceleration rate will be heavier, and the acceleration rate would be less, and we'd need more track so that's one. The other thing is that um, unlike america we 've got um, about an eight month weather window, which is mm-hmm. unbelievable yeah. Yeah. in america we 've only got about six weeks, so you 've got to go like sure. hell, um, otherwise uh, you know the weather catches you out and you 've got to stop so here we've got um, we've got eight months, so the grand plan um, is to be out there in the British summer, which is the South African winter, Um, start running there, work it through over a period of uh, two to three months, uh, get ourselves supersonic, and then come home and uh, go into the rebuild.
0: I mean the the weather is I remember crucial because I do remember those mornings where everybody was walking around looking as though all their grandparents had died at once <laughs> and, and, and and that meant that meant we're not running today
1: yeah
3: and of course that is very disruptive <clears throat> just recently I think one of the one of the milestones you've just passed is actually the forging of the wheels yeah mm. um, it, uh, it was one of those facts that just sort of blows your mind uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, the, uh, on the rims of these wheels, they'll be exerted to, is it 55G? 55 55,000G. 55, yeah, wow.
1: <laughs> okay, so um, Andy's got a lovely expression here, which is, if you were to put a, a kilogram bang of sugar on the, on the wheel rim, and somehow it stayed there at 10,500 RPM, uh, then basically it'd be the equivalent of loading that wheel, that wheel rim up with a fully loaded, articulated truck. Wow.
0: And who's making them?
1: Uh, right, Otto Fuchs have uh, been doing the forging in Germany. And oh, that's a then shame. Ca- not, they're not no, British. No, we can't do that in Britain anymore. And uh, a wonderful company called Castle Precision Engineering are um, machining them up in, in Glasgow Britain. in Britain. Yeah. Good. Mm.
0: Good. Because, because I, I think we're all, we're, we're, you know, we may not be as mad about this as you are. Well, if we were, we'd be doing it, wouldn't we? But we all hope, I think that Bloodhound will produce more engineers in Britain because that, that well, actually would be the best possible result. Well, we're
1: we're going, we're, we've got no problem with this. It's creating enormous numbers of engineers already. Um, it's very, very interesting this. You see, the fundamental thing is that the um, the schools have been actually deprived of, uh, of of engineering, largely because of health and safety issues, because uh, basically we didn't do this in Britain anymore, and so on. And so there we arrive on the scene and we introduce them into, uh, uh, into Bloodhound. Where it's very interesting, where it's not just a, co- a collection of people just doing something. We're a collection of people put, busting our guts to create the most innovative and creative car that's ever been made. So, um, you know, they, the, the, the kids really empathise with this. Then um, what's what's happened? The figures are very, very interesting, um, and it's worth just uh, recording that one of our sponsors is the University of West of England, and over the last three years, because they've been sponsoring Bloodhound, uh, their engineering intake has doubled. Yep, and uh, we now, as I say, have five thousand four hundred and fifty-two schools on it. Um, there's a huge level. I mean, the kids are now building rocket cars now, and just recently the uh, the playground land speed record has been raised yes, to 204 miles an hour across yes. the playground. This is pretty impressive. This is serious actually. stuff. It's bloody brilliant, isn't it? It's really well, it great. It is actually bloody yeah. brilliant. Just yeah. about yeah. describes it. And it? Uh, you know, and it's going to have an enormous effect. The interesting thing was the other night uh, I was at a dinner where Vince Cable was speaking, and he said the interesting thing is this: is our problem is that we only create Uh, around 32,000 physics A-level successes uh, per annum uh, from all those schools. And of those 32,000, we probably get 30,000 engineers from that. So we're only producing 30,000 engineers. And he then went on to say that uh, Britain is absolutely the worst in Europe in terms of gender balance and uh, in 50% of all the, um, the uh, state co-educational schools there is not one girl with physics A-level.
0: It strikes me you've got to do another book.
1: I guess so, at well, some stage, yes. <laughs> so
0: well, is, that, is that, yes, you, you will? Or?
1: Well, we've done, we've done another, an interesting book, which is uh, selling very, very well at the moment now. It's only available from the Bloodhound website, but is the Rolex book on the car technology. Because you see, the point about it is that we're making all this technology available. Um, uh, there's a huge amount of data and everything going out, but the fundamental thing is that what was needed was a book for people to to, to really understand this thing and um, this beautiful book has been produced and uh, is selling in very large numbers which is absolutely great so that's the start and then of course there are going to be a lot of books about the um, about the, the struggle to get this
3: thing together and you know and beat the british system and all the rest <laughs> i had a i had a quick look on amazon before you came in and you're like la- the, they're so few and far between the one price i saw for a book on amazon was 162 pounds yeah yeah they're in demand so it's about time you wrote another one I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a thrust us see we produced uh 59,000
1: of those uh, hardback and they were never remanded.
0: I have a signed copy I wonder what it's worth <laughs> 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 Anyway, um, we've got some questions from uh, the Motorsport Magazine podcast listeners. Oh good, okay. great God, right. I hope I can answer them Yeah. Uh, can anybody hear me? There's an amazing noise outside I think it's, 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 a, it's a ship going up the river Anyway um, Ed Markwick wants to know, Richard if you do break the thousand mile an hour barrier what speed would your next attempt be <laughs>
1: thank you ed thank you very much this is uh, absolutely the last one we're never ever <laughs> going to go through this trauma and pain and aggro ever again you heard
0: it here first
2: he <laughs> <laughs> sounds um, like steve Redgrave, doesn't <laughs> he? he didn't, didn't listen to him either right. <laughs>
1: um,
0: that, maybe we could put the maybe ed's question could be put a slightly different way and that is after a thousand miles an hour, presumably in years to come, somebody will go quicker. Oh, for you?
1: God's sake, yes, I hope so. I really hope so. I mean, the thing about it is that uh, uh, providing we're successful with this, um, and, it'll, and we believe it's going to generate enormous coverage, it's being sure. followed on the, the web now in 220 countries. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, the only ones we haven't got, curious enough, are North Korea, which you might expect, and Vatican City. So if anybody knows the Pope, perhaps they can give him a nudge. <laughs> I think you're, you're the man to nudge
0: the Pope, Richard. Um... Uh, The next question comes from um, GMR Design. Do you know GMR Design? No? Okay. No, I don't. They want to know, Richard, whether you've considered supercharging the V8 Cosworth fuel pump to reduce stresses and increase fuel economy.
1: Hmm. Well, um, basically, uh, there's no real reason for that. Uh, Basically, the way we've got it set up, it uses very, very little fuel and uh um, as far as we're concerned uh you know that would would mean a mean a huge amount of development for very little gain it delivers the power we want and um and, and that's it frankly i don't want to meddle with it
0: i think I, th- I think that particular question from gmr design is is interesting in itself in that it's it, it illustrates what you've been saying that people are taking an interest in the detail yes yeah yeah
3: which is um, really good news what uh, if i could just jump in if you What's your, do you have a main area of concern on the project? Is it the rocket or is it the aerodynamics? So is, is there anything at the moment that you're still slightly or slightly scratching your head with?
1: Um, yeah, we've got a few, but um, they're not the big major concerns we had right at the start of the project, which is like the aerodynamics. Uh, you know that's all gone away now that's gone away and the structures and the way we build the car and etc that's all gone. And now it's, now it's just money and get the thing finished.
0: Okay, um, we're nearly we're nearly at uh, the close of our podcast today. But another question before we go from Phil Retsas. It's and it says Phil Retzas says, "Did you manage to fix anything on Thrust Two, or Thrust SSC by hitting it with a hammer?"
1: <laughs> no, Phil, I wouldn't dare. <laughs> I think I think his
0: his point being that you know. 30 years ago yes
1: you would have have bent something or banged something but no 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 these are very high technology vehicles and they've got to be treated with great respect
0: absolutely okay Um, and finally Daniel Sloan just says Richard you must write another book the last one was brilliant
1: Oh, that's very generous of him.
0: And seeing as you're (laughs) never going to do one of these projects again, you'll have plenty of time to (laughs) to
1: write write, the book, yeah. To write
0: the ultimate book. Well,
1: there's a lot of there's there's some fantastic stories in Bloodhound. I mean, unbelievable stories. Yeah, Uh, so can be good.
0: I I believe it. As there were with Thrust (laughs) Two, we remember, and we're going to be celebrating in October the 30th anniversary. And all us Thrusters, that that includes everybody who was there. You know, even if we were only talking about it um we'll be hopefully having some kind of drink yeah we've got to do that to celebrate even he might turn up you know, <laughs> know passing through anyway thank you very very much my Richard. pleasure was, thank you so much for your time absolutely yeah, an interest, fascinating yeah. and and um we don't normally tackle land speed records on motorsport magazine but i'm very glad we did because it shows you doesn't it the amount of effort and technology and detail that goes into it just like just like modern Formula One.
2: Yeah, I, I think in terms of the magazine, the magazine's always followed land speed record from the from the, the beginning, and I think it's a very important part of motor racing heritage. Is, is that is that chase to 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 be the fastest on land? And I think it's a very important part, and we'll be following it closely from here on.
0: Good. as we have been up to now. Absolutely, Good. yeah, Thank no, you. no, that's dead, that's totally right, Damien. Actually, um, because all the great names of British land speed records have always featured in Motorsport magazine, haven't they? I remember my father pointing them out to me. Good. Okay. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. Thank you. And um, I hope you'll join us again next month. Meanwhile, it's goodbye from us at Motorsport Magazine. (laughs) Bye-bye.